Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the CGF podcast with me, Louise Chester. If you don't know us, the Consumer Goods Forum is a CEO-led organization that brings consumer goods retailers and manufacturers together globally to help collaborate with other key stakeholders to secure consumer trust and drive positive change. Our eight coalitions of action have been designed to achieve collective impact on critical industry issues related to environmental and social sustainability, health and wellness, end-to-end value chains and food safety. On our podcast, we'll be breaking down all of these topics and more and engaging in insightful conversations with leaders from in and outside the industry as they share their thoughts on the challenges facing our planet and its people. I'm delighted to have three guests on today's episode. We'll begin by talking to NG Impact's Director of Sustainability Solutions, James Ramsey, and then also chat to Grants and Stakeholder Manager of NG Energy Access, Nawalua, and Managing Partner of the Shared Wood Company, Clément Chenot. All three join today to share their thoughts on the potential of various offsetting and nature-based solutions to mitigate the climate crisis. So let's meet them and get started. A very warm welcome to all three of you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. How are you doing? Good. Hello. Hello, Louise. Fantastic. Hello, Louise. Hello, Louise. All good, thank you. Brilliant. So I'd like to begin today by talking quite broadly about companies setting ambitious climate change targets, as we've seen some really significant momentum on that front in in recent years. So, James, I'm going to start by asking you a question on this. What role does offsetting and the carbon markets play in this? Well, thank you, Louise. Um, The backdrop here is that governments and organizations have been ramping up their climate change commitments in the face of scientific data. Data which tells us that we need to reduce emissions 45% by 2030 and reach net zero by 2050 if we are to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. But there is a challenge. To hit this target, we have room to emit just another 400 billion tons of carbon emissions and we are currently running at about 50 billion per annum. So we've got about eight years of runway left at the current rate. So how are we doing? Well, there's good and bad news. Uh, The bad news is that there is a significant gap between where we are headed and, and where we need to be. Effectively, we've started late and we're behind. But the good news is that 75% of global emissions are now covered by these ambitious organizational and country level net zero targets, up from just 16% in 2019. And these ambitious targets really are where and why carbon offsets come into play. Because first of all, getting to zero emissions and getting there quickly is just not possible. So at the base of every company net zero commitment will be a requirement for carbon credits. Put simply, everybody who has a net zero commitment will be offsetting. Secondly, reducing emissions in line with the 1.5 degrees target is in essence the very minimum that a corporate or an organization is required to do. It's a license to operate position. And of course, reducing emissions takes time. So even if you do have an ambitious decarbonization target, what do you do with the emissions you generate as you decarbonize? Do you just ignore them? Uh, 
Well, if, if you're an organization with a, a leading climate position, I suggest that carbon markets provide a way for you to address this challenge and deal with what we term unavoidable and residual emissions. And it works by finding and financing emission reduction and removal opportunities outside your company boundary and taking credit for those. And that quite simply is the role of the carbon markets. So with this concept in mind, companies have actually been doing this and have been voluntarily offsetting for about 20 years. And whilst it's been the target of much lively debate and criticism, the carbon markets can play a really valuable climate role by doing really two broad things. The first is funding a smorgasbord of no regrets and actually quite low cost and often very high impact projects that reduce emissions, such as providing and subsidizing clean energy to some of the two billion plus households that still use traditional and carbon intensive fuels to cook, for example, or perhaps protecting and restoring our forests, noting that deforestation accounts for up to 30% of global emissions. So addressing these two things really does uh, combat uh, climate change. The second is that they provide a route to seed and accelerate development in frontier solutions that the sorts of frontier solutions that are needed to remove the billions of tons of carbon emissions we need to be removing by 2050 whilst also addressing perhaps some of the hard to decarbonize areas of the global economy. Um, and so carbon markets provide solutions in these areas from the negative emission technologies, some of you might have heard of direct air capture, to technologies focused on enabling and supporting the production of green commodities, green cement, green hydrogen, sustainable aviation fuel, and so on, none of which are commercially feasible without the extra funding, a problem that carbon markets can solve. So. Offsetting in carbon markets are and can be a fantastic complementary tool to corporate reduction. Done right, they enable uh, climate leadership. And, and put simply, given the challenge we face, we need to use every tool in the armory. And final point here is the climate really doesn't discriminate against where emission reductions come from. It just needs lots of them. Thanks, James, for setting the scene so nicely for us there. So you referenced that carbon offsetting has attracted quite a lively debate. Could you shed some more light on this and perhaps tell us what organisations should do to navigate the, the offsetting space? Yeah, of course. Uh, it, indeed, it has been very lively. Um, a lot of noise around voluntary offsetting. But when you boil this noise down or when I boil this noise down what I see is I see two primary challenges that draw most of the fire and I label these a challenge around principle and a challenge around projects. So let's take the first one uh, the challenge around principle. The argument here is that offsetting is a distraction which simply allows organizations to carry on emitting or draws capacity towards uh, away from uh, internal decarbonization activities. So this distraction argument uh, proposes that in effect by offsetting organizations are able to buy their way out of their climate obligations and it gives them a license to pollute. In some sort of circles, the, the, this is challenged as a climate indulgence. Now, my response to this is, is straightforward. It is absolutely and fundamentally key that offsetting is a complementary activity. Anyone 
using carbon credits to offset their emissions has to be reducing their emissions, at least in line with the science-based target. So put simply, this is an and and not an or. Because to solve the climate challenge, organizations have to invest in the transition. They have to scale and support new low or no carbon technology, and they have to evolve and develop new business models, which in some will dramatically address the flow of emissions into the atmosphere. But I would also add that offsetting puts a cost on the price of carbon. By putting a price on the carbon, it costs to emit carbon. And with carbon credit prices forecast to rise to $100 a tonne by 2030, offsetting really will be no free meal. The second one, and this is the argument around projects, is that these projects don't work. They overreport their impact and might even have happened anyway. And my response as a practitioner and advisor in this market is to is to onboard this. Um, it is a nascent market and one in which standards and quality continues to evolve. And despite being a fan, I recognize that not all carbon credits are created equally. Therefore, it is absolutely essential that corporate buyers understand what they are buying as they would do for any other input. And really this requires two things. Uh, corporate buyers or corporate actors who are engaging the space need to be able to determine quality, they need to be able to navigate the world of international carbon standards, and they need to be able to check that projects are additional, that they really are dependent on the climate finance, they wouldn't have happened anyway, that the emission reductions are real and independently audit, audited, that the emission reductions and removals are permanent, and where there is a risk of reversal, uh, for example, in nature-based projects, this is understood, accounted for, and mitigatory actions put in place. And then finally, from a non-carbon point of view, they need to be able to ensure that the projects work with communities and engage with communities and not against them. And this is where my second point comes in. Um, buyers should factor in that these projects do much more than save carbon. Indeed, the beauty and the majesty of the carbon markets is that many of these kinds of projects, their impact goes way beyond carbon, restoring nature, addressing the biodiversity crisis, improving agricultural yields, and making a material impact to livelihoods, health outcomes, and gender issues often in vulnerable communities who are located in parts of the world where climate change is already having a significant impact. And I think for your audience, Louise, what is interesting is that these sorts of outcomes generally align with many organizational purpose statements. Indeed, the sorts of things that many consumer goods companies focus on that will appeal and resonate with their consumers, their products, and their, their employees too. So to sum up, navigate the voluntary carbon markets well and navigate this as part of a comprehensive decarbonization program. And I think companies can really demonstrate how stakeholder capitalism works to the advantage of people, planet and profit. Thank you, James. You have an absolute wealth of knowledge to share on the topic. I feel we could dedicate a whole episode just to this, but in the interest of time, I'm going to move us on and Clement, I'm going to target you next. So we know that nature-based projects are seen as an, as an area with a lot of potential. Could you tell us more about how this works and maybe give us an example of a project that you've worked on and its outcomes? Sir, Sir Louis. 
Well, uh, nature-based projects, they've got potential because uh, nature is part of the problem. As uh, James uh, rightly said, 30% uh, uh, of, uh, of CO2 emissions are due to uh, changes in land use. On the other side, uh, nature is also part of the solution. As, uh, as of today, uh, roughly 50% of the global CO2 emissions are absorbed by ecosystems. So there are ways and projects uh, to optimize uh, this uh, positive uh, climate benefits. So I, I will try to, to list the different kinds of, of projects that companies can encounter. So we're talking about uh, removal projects and avoidance projects on the other side. So removal projects, it's about uh, absorbing, pumping CO2 of the atmosphere and storing this CO2 in ecosystems, uh, in trees or, uh, or soils. On the other side, avoidance projects target to, to, uh, to avoid CO2 emission, especially due uh, to uh, forest degradation and uh, deforestation, which, is, uh, which are responsible for massive uh, CO2 uh, emissions. So, now, so to give you more details uh, regarding removals, you've got three uh, main types of projects. The first one is afforestation, reforestation, and restoration projects. So basically, that's when you, you create a new forest, you recreate a forest from a degraded land, uh, from an agricultural land. Through these uh, new trees, this, uh, this uh, recreation of a forest, you will store carbon that you can turn into, into credits. So that's the first uh, technology. Second type of project, is improved forest management, IFM. So there are different ways uh, to, manage the, to manage a forest and there are ways to optimize uh, their carbon storage. So how do you do that? So by extending uh, tree rotation, by harvesting less, I would say, and thanks to this, uh, to this uh, kind of management, you can prove that you store more uh, carbon in comparison to a, uh, to a forest that is, that is managed on a, let's say, on a conventional basis. Third type of uh, removal projects, so that's about agricultural land. So for example, by developing agroecological practices, you can store more carbon in soils, but also you can introduce trees uh, within, uh, within farms. So that's what is called agroforestry, the combination of, of forestry, with agricultural activities. So you can also store carbon through uh, this, uh, this technology. So that's uh, the three types of, of uh, removal projects. So now let's talk about avoidance. So um, you might have heard about the acronym RED. So that's reducing emission from deforestation and forest degradation. So this is about preserving uh, these forests that are also carbon, carbon stocks. So how do you do that? Through conservation, so protection of forests, but that's not enough. Because in fact, to, be, to really reduce the emission, you have to tackle the driver of, of deforestation, which are basically development of agriculture and, and poverty. Because in the end, uh, we have uh, farmers that to sustain their livelihood, to, to, to feed their communities, are clearing uh, those, those forests. So alternatively, uh, those kind of projects have to develop value chains, sustainable value chain, agroforestry, agroecological uh, value chains to increase the revenues of the farmers that will not have 
to clear the, this additional surface of forest. So tackling uh, deforestation is about bringing positive, uh, positive outcome for the communities. Or to give you a, a, a concrete example of project, uh, we our most recent project uh, we have uh, we have uh, developed with uh, with NG. Now it's a project in France. Uh, European forests are threatened uh, by climate change. Uh, we see we we saw super fires uh, last year, uh, diseases, uh, storms, droughts that are affecting uh, the, the European forests. And we've launched an ambitious program to, to, to restore 3,000 hectares. So in France, uh, western part of France uh, was affected by, by fire uh, this summer. So we have launched with, uh, with a forest cooperative uh, uh, an ambitious program to, uh, to restore uh, degraded forest by fire and uh, store additional, uh, additional carbon. And uh, also using a new, uh, new species that will be better adapted to climate change in the future. Great. Thank you for sharing this example. I think it really helps to bring it to life for our listeners. So I just wanted to dig into the challenges with you, Clement. I know that projects like this are being challenged on issues such as permanence, for example. Could you elaborate on that? There are several challenges regarding the nature-based solutions. One of them uh, is that, uh, well, we're talking about biological carbon. And it's true that, uh, well, when you store this carbon in soil, in trees, as I previously said, there is a risk that uh, this carbon uh, might uh, go back uh, into the atmosphere. Uh, voilà. For example, if, if there is a fire and the forest burns, then the, the carbon will be released into the atmosphere. Well, uh, standards worked a lot on, on these specific issues uh, over, over the, the past year, and I believe there are no uh, robust solutions to tackle, uh, to tackle uh, this issue. One of them is uh, by developing insurance system. So in fact, what you do what you, when, you develop, when you develop a project is that you will, uh, you will evaluate uh, risks uh, of fire, of diseases, drought, and so on. So you will evaluate the, the risks that the, the carbon may go back into the atmosphere. So it might be, I don't know, a risk of 10, 30, 50%. And uh, you will have to put uh, those credits uh, into a buffer. And all projects all over the world will put 10, 20, 30, 40% of, of their credits into, into a buffer. Uh, that will guarantee, uh, I would say, the, the integrity of the system. So you will say what is key there is to have the proper evaluation of the risk, to have a buffer that is sufficient to guarantee uh, the integrity of the, of the whole system. So this is a, an example. There are other ways to, to mitigate this, but it's an example of how this issue of, of permanence is dealt with. Thank you, Clement. So moving on to you then, Nawa. We know that carbon projects don't just involve trees. So perhaps you could share your experience on how carbon credits work as a funding mechanism. Thank you, Louise, for that question. Um, indeed, carbon projects don't just involve trees. And speaking directly into the work that we do at NG Energy Access, our projects um, involve and revolve around our mission to deliver 
life-changing, affordable, reliable, and sustainable energy solutions. Uh, and of course, putting the customer at the center, making their experience exceptional. Um, so just a little bit more background into who we are and what we do. We operate in nine African countries, that being Benin, Cote d'Ivoire, Kenya, Mozambique, Nigeria, Rwanda, Tanzania, Uganda, and Zambia, where we have so far impacted over 8 million lives. And to bring it back to the question that we have uh, before us, um, Africa has an energy deficit gap of over 600 million Africans that lack basic access to electricity. And in doing our small part as energy, we intend to impact at least 20 million Africans with clean, affordable energy by 2025. So, how do carbon credits work as a funding mechanism? Well, carbon credits are used by companies to compensate for their carbon emissions um, by either adhering to emission allowances or contributing to sustainable projects. So, uh, stepping uh, NG energy access when it comes to sustainable projects. So, carbon financing particularly supports projects such as ours in a couple of ways, and, and I'll go through them as I answer this question. Um, one of them is to do with affordability. So carbon financing uh, mechanisms allow companies such as ours to reduce the, cross, uh, the cost of our products by subsidizing because we understand that we operate in low income countries and a practical example of our product say which costs about 150 um, dollars can easily be brought down to cost a hundred dollars and that 50 dollars gap is easily covered by such funding mechanisms um, further on uh, we do offer financing options for our beneficiaries or our clients and how we are able to do that is through support from um, various funding mechanisms such as uh, carbon financing so EA goes a step further in offering this financing options through our pay-as-you-go model. So a customer then is able to, say, procure a, a solar home system and pay for an extended period of about 24 months. And to be honest, a company would not be profitable um, or even at the very least be able to um, cover its operational costs, being able to loan out a product for 24 months. So having support from financing mechanisms such as carbon financing allows us to go a step further for our clients in the event that they don't have the money to purchase um, a product outright, we give them that financing option that ranges from six months to eight months, 12 or even 24 months. Uh, and lastly, carbon financing mechanisms can support projects such as ours um, through accessibility. So here I'm talking about last mile distribution. Um, our customers typically tend to be in the rural far-flung areas. So away from the greed, terrible terrain, inaccessible roads um, that you cannot sometimes get to by vehicle. And through our large agent uh, commission-based agent network, um, they're able to then ensure that our products are available to even those areas. And they reach these people through 
quite a tumultuous situation. So it could be by foot, it could be by boat, it could be by bicycle. And this just shows you the extent to which um, such funding mechanisms can support projects such as ours. So in practicality, our projects contribute immensely to the reduction of emissions through our various clean energy products that we provide to our customers. And uh, to be honest, the impact that support such as this can have on a project such as ours goes beyond um, giving access to energy or basic lighting. Uh, and, and as I just conclude in answering this question, um, the extent to which carbon financing can support our projects has been clearly highlighted through its impact towards our affordability vertical, accessibility and financing options. But all in all, it has the tremendous transformative power that um, access to energy projects do go beyond basic lighting. And this has a domino effect towards our livelihoods and enhancement towards our communities. You know, you know this brings uh, onto the table productive use, uh, the ability for school going children to be able to study after hours, you know, that female headed household that can now bring an income into their home through add on appliances that you can bring into into the energy mix. So I, I hope I have been able to lay the ground for our listeners um, as to how far supporting projects such as ours through various mechanisms but particularly through carbon financing, how this can have an impact on projects that we do at NG Energy Access. Thank you, Nawa. It's so interesting to hear these examples uh, of, of the work on the ground in Africa. So let's start to wrap up this episode then. I would like to hear from each of you if, if you could give one key takeaway or piece of advice for the audience when they're thinking about offsetting as an option for decarbonizing their organization. So perhaps we could go in the order that you spoke on this episode. If we start with James, then Clement, then Nawa. Okay, thank you again, Louise. Um, okay, my key takeaway would be that carbon credits and offsetting is not a commodity that can be bought tactically in the isolation of any other activity. Uh, to engage with this market and to do it well, organizations need to take a strategic approach to ensure that the, the program has a credible narrative, that it nests within their reduction activities, and that it aligns with their corporate values. For consumer goods companies, this can work incredibly well where the projects align with their products and their target consumer goods. For example, household projects such as Nowers for companies that target household expenditure or food and beverage or apparel companies supporting uh, projects relevant to their agricultural supply chain and nature-based projects like Clemens. Given the boom in carbon offsetting, we are witnessing an experience evolution in project standards and prices, however. And what we are seeing is that there are forecasts that prices will grow to over $100 a credit by 2030, or certainly some forecasts suggest that. And with so many climate change targets going live around 2030, my strong advice here and this is the point I'd really like to leave your audiences with, is that in order to navigate this market successfully, 
organizations need to be building capacity and understanding now with a view to designing and building roadmaps that will manage these price, quality and supply and regulatory risks for when their targets go live in 2030. And this takes time. So anyone with a 2030 target should probably start mapping that out about now. Thank you, thank you, James. I, I can follow um, as Louise proposed. Uh, well, my key takeaway will be that uh, when we when we talk about uh, offset and uh, and contribution of uh, of forests, well, as uh, as James said previously, sometimes we hear the word "well, this is this is a distraction." And the point I would like to make is that, uh, well, currently uh, forests are being destroyed at, uh, at an alarming rate. Uh, we do not know uh, what uh, level of primary forest will, re will remain in 2040 or 2050 if we continue uh, with, with, such, uh, with such a rate of, uh, of, of deforestation. Likewise, uh, when we discuss the potential of ecosystem to absorb, to pump uh, CO2 uh, from the atmosphere, well, that's not immediate. Uh, when you plant a tree, it takes time to grow. So once again, uh, if we want to have a significant uh, level of removal and storage by 2040, by 2050, well, we have to restore ecosystems right now. So I believe, uh, I believe my key takeaway is that we have no choice. We have uh, to reduce uh, our consumption of fossil, of fossil fuel. Uh, that's very clear. But also, uh, we have to conserve ecosystem and, and restore them right now. And uh, that's uh, key uh, to reach our, our common objectives on climate, as defined by the Paris Agreement. But that's also key for another challenge, which is the preservation of biodiversity. And I hope that ambitious uh, objectives will be, will be defined at the next uh, conference of the parties in Montreal that will start in a, in a few weeks' time. Um, my, my key takeaway and essentially my call to action is, as we wrap up um, this discussion is essentially to call on, on industry to support the work um, that we are doing in our various um, in our various projects that we've been able to highlight um, in this discussion, and and tapping into you know differentiated responsibility, you know we are all definitely responsible for our current global um, environmental crisis, but we are not at the same time all equally responsible and particularly i think with the kind of audience that we have listening in it's important that we channel back into um, projects that are really championing um, improving our current status of, of our environment and our client and and our climate so i therefore put out a call to action um, just to understand what this type of funding or this type of support can do for projects such as ours and the transformative power that it has to really change communities, you know, that are in rural areas that are marginalized and decentralized. So uh, I will conclude by saying, please jump onto this bandwagon <laughs> and uh, 
read more about what the about the work that we are doing and how you can support it through mechanisms such as carbon financing. Well, thank you so much to all three of you for sharing these really valuable insights today. We've got so much to dig into on this topic and I think you've managed to pack so much into this these 30 minutes or so. We've looked at the issue from a few angles. I think it's been particularly interesting to hear these concrete and indeed global examples of projects from forests to carbon credits that really bring it to life for our audience. And of course, it's been great to hear how companies in our industry can navigate this really concrete challenge and and make a difference with corporate offsetting. So thank you to all three of you for taking the time today. Thank you, Louise. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Louise. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you would like to find out more about our work at the CGF, you can visit our website at www.theconsumergoodsforum.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe for more episodes coming very soon. Thank you and bye for now.